Welcome to Say That, the podcast your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining me here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. Okay. Yeah, buffering over there? What's going on? <laughs> He's pinwheeling. Oh, so sometimes I jump in too early, so I just wanted to see what it was like to hang back. Just trying to achieve balance. Yeah, yeah. Overall. Yeah. Also joining us, director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. Greetings. And it's all the way from our Christian scene, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. I feel like all this balance, it's like a... It's like Glenn is imposing his Japanese aesthetic on this yeah. podcast, and I just don't know how I feel about it. Well, we are pretty dang international. It's true. I mean, there's we're lot, like the most. There's a Go lot ahead. of zen. There's a lot of zen happening. Yeah, the, this is not a nation that we've offended yet. Oh, Give it time. That's true. Yeah, we 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 should get on that. I'm pretty sure we have. Oh, okay. well, yeah, I mean, just yeah. by the odds. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, we we we've gotten to a lot of countries. Well, yeah, it's we we've we've offended a lot as well. Probably the same number we've gotten to. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. But uh, none of that's surprising because we've done this quite a few times at this point, gentlemen. Oh, yeah. What are we up I was, to? I was sitting uh, getting uh, the notes prepared, and I realized this is our three hundred and thirty third episode. Oh, wow, well, that's good. That's, that feels like an accomplishment. That feels positive. Yeah, yeah. Or it could be a sign of doom. <laughs> Let us turn now to the revelation of St. John of Patmos. I, I think Bible numerology, Jed, has just entered the picture here. The 13th chapter oh, and the one. 18th verse. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the podcast, for it is half the number of man. What translation is that? And his number is 300, one and a half score, and three. That is quite a revelation if he foresaw podcasting. Yeah. Gentlemen, we aren't yet on the highway to hell, but we may be on the side road adjacent to the highway, kind of halfway there. Wow, that's pretty scary. Yeah, that's, that's the cover by ACBC. Halfway to hell? Side road to hell. As theologian J.B. Jovi wrote, oh, oh, we're halfway there yeah. to perdition. Was, Was that the other half? I was worried that joke wasn't going to work in this bit, but he made it happen. I can always find the damnation in anything. <laughs> Do you have to work that hard to find the damnation in listening to Bon Jovi? <laughs> you know, they, they, they said it's like, uh, sometimes it's like we're living on a prayer. It's yes. very much like for, uh, for new listeners, and this does not help our case that we are not uh, halfway to the road to perdition. That is a real thing. Uh, Glenn, for his own amusement, has snuck into... Conversation with seminarians right. is quoting the the great writer J.B. Jovi yeah. and his his discourse on prayer. Yeah, it's almost as if we're giving love a bad name. Wow, <laughs> that's know? now. Does that mean that this podcast is going to go down in a blaze of glory? Exactly. Yes. Right. People want this podcast dead or alive. Oh. so so, but uh, three hundred thirty-three. That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, we're. I mean, we're halfway to the end of times. So that feels about right. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> I always that's thought this podcast would have a hand have a hand in it. So it's like we don't yet have a beast rising out of the sea, right? But like the beast is more lounging in the sea. Okay, it, okay. it's just kind of chilling out there. <laughs> so we're doing like an apocalyptic prequel. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly, I'm, right. I'm like getting the team together. Yeah, exactly. And the last the last scene of our thing will be when Revelation starts. Exactly. Right. Okay. If you're an apocalyptic beast with many heads or many sides to your head, 
and you're yeah. chilling in the sea, just like sipping Mai Tais. Do you have to yeah. have a Mai Tai for each head? Well, you raise a really yeah. good point. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, yeah, double fisted, uh, <laughs> double barrel drinking. But here, here's what I'm saying is. Uh, you, you ever you know those people like they get the syllabus yeah and they just start cranking before they you know what I mean I nope. do know those people I do not Jed and I went to very different schools well that's I I think Matt and I came from the same thing of oh that test is tomorrow I guess I better get in the book that, better give that know? a perusal so I think in terms of you know being halfway to doom right and, and the beast rising up from the you right. know whatever. Uh, we're pretty comfortable with that. Okay. Yeah, that seems fair. So we don't yet have the abomination that causes desolation. No, I mean, it's like, uh, we don't have, I mean, we got plenty of time to stockpile stuff. Probably. Sure, sure. We, we can be kind of half-hearted doomsday preppers. Yeah, we can wing it. Sure, sure. I like it. I like it. That's good. You gotta be casual. I think that helps a lot. Well, sure. I mean, you don't want to lose the joy of discovery in every day. That's right. Well, I got another idea. And if you guys don't like it, well, you just send it right back. Hit me. So let's say this, you got, uh, I'm going to throw some math at you, and this, is, this might be new to a lot of people listening to this. You got your Zeno's Paradox. Yes. Okay. So what it is is it's like you're, you keep going halfway there. Yes. John, John Bon Jovi style. Right, yes. Zeno's Paradox, different from Zeno's Paradox, which is something that involves Tom Cruise that we won't we talk about for legal that, reasons. That's a whole other podcast right there. But here's what I'm saying is we just keep numbering them right. halfway to 666. You see what I'm saying? And we'll never get there. We'll never get there. Problem solved. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Episode 665.9999999. Take that, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's brilliant. And I would like to posit one another angle on this. I think Wait, you're saying something better than beating Satan with math? That does seem hard to imagine, but let's you know, let's hear him it out. Feels like that may not be the strategy I have. Well, I'm talking more for a monetary gain while we wait for uh, you know oh, the, the final destruction. Fantastic. Because uh, both Lee and Jed brought up something that I never really thought about, which okay. is you know you got your sea creatures and yeah. monsters and whatnot in the yeah. Revelation. Um, just following the logic of it. Uh-huh. They were probably uh, birthed right. and then grew. Yeah. I'm talking about Revelation Babies, the animated series. Yes! Okay. Wow. Adorable yeah. baby beast with seven heads. Right. Plushy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sure. Yes. You put that in the crib at night uh-huh. yes. to really terrify that child and keep him, uh-huh. uh-huh. you know. Because uh-huh. that's basically what ha- half the sermons in you know, Sunday school are anyway. Right. You know, be afraid of this. But you yeah. can have, like, you know, a squeaky version of that. Put them on a mobile. Right. I think there's a lot of. I think this is, could be the VeggieTales follow up we've all been waiting well, for. Oh and, yeah, and we not only monetize that, but once the fear really sets in, then you go ahead and start monetizing th- certain things about the underground bunkers. You know, I mean, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, while people are getting really motivated to kind of, you know, I mean, I saw a documentary one time with a underground bunker with John Goodman in there, right? And um, you know, I was impressed. I feel like it we was- could we could really kind of get on in on that racket. Yeah, it was really organized, and you want to you want to have that. Well, sure, yeah. you got to have a good bunker. Yeah, yeah, like a de- dehydrated. Uh, you know what I mean? Freeze yeah. dry. Uh, I mean, we got to get it like a freeze dryer to make that work. Oh, of course. Here, here's what I'm going to pitch. Yeah. As long as we're we're combining these things, um, you got your uh, your multi campus churches. Yes. Yeah, your small site churches. You got people like home church. 
Bunker Church. Ooh, wow. Bunker Church. Go ahead and plant that Bunker Church. Dude. (laughs) Be the first. There are a lot of people already in Bunker Church, but yes. (laughs) But not metaphorical Bunker Church. That's right. Uh, That's right. Literal Bunker Church. Underground Bunker Church. I would attend a literal Bunker Church. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just once, just to see. (laughs) Yeah, see what's happening. What do they know that I can make that happen? Sure, yeah. And then in the Bunker Church, you just have the plush uh, Revelation babies in there. Oh, it's branded. Just the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about this? You got your Pokemon Go. Yes. Ah. Well, just Leviathan Go. Yes. Boom. Excellent. App. Yes. Thank you, Apple. Give us all your money. You just disrupted the end times. That's what you yep. just did. That's yeah. <laughs> that's passed what we off need. as a Bible education app. That's 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 VBS taken care of. That's that's right. You put them on the <laughs> Leviathan Go app. Yeah. You send them out in the neighborhood. They're catching demons with a cell phone. The adults get to go back and Boom. take a nap. Yeah, yeah in the bunker, right. no yeah. doubt. Yeah. yeah, I think I think we've solved this problem. <laughs> that's true. You don't want to confuse bunker church with church bunker, which is kind of a safe room for the pastor situation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. He can just kind of he can just kind of flee, dude. Yeah. Honestly, I would because there there's a lot of pastors who put up with a lot. No, we wow. got to be clear. I would, on some level, I would respect a pastor who went ahead and built a safe room connected to his office. Right. <laughs> if he knew someone was coming to have an awful conversation, he just goes in the safe room. Well, Pastor, you going to the denominational retreat? Nope, I've got my own thing. Well, and that's where you have John Goodman, you know, guarding the door. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, just apocalyptic John Goodman, that is not somebody anyone is messing with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good call. That's a cool. If we could have, I think the one thing that would make my experience of Bunker Church complete is John Goodman, specifically from Barton Fink, which I know no one has seen. But right. the character in that, yeah. if I could have that be the preacher at Bunker Church, right. that I I could die a happy man. Yeah. I really could. Yeah. I think I think a lot of John Goodman characters would work for this. Yeah. I think true. we found our spokesman. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> he doesn't know that yet, but he, he will in time. He seems like a guy who doesn't turn down work. <laughs> He's in everything. That's great. Yeah. And and you're always happy to see him. Yeah, that's right. Uh, beef jerky. I think we need a lot of that. Oh, jerkies of all kind, no doubt. Totally. Which brings us to uh, a, a, a guilt sub-emergency. Ah. You know what? I'm about to rock your world, man. You yeah. get to have a full emergency because we right. never declared it. Well, that's, right. that's Bible why... numerology, Jed, is a maverick. That's, that's why this show's... Going right into perdition. I mean, eventually. <laughs> eventually. Not quickly. Not it's now. taking a while to get to halfway it's to perdition. It's only halfway there, but still, you know. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, I'm talking to uh, uh, the super fans yeah. out there. The, people, the super fans are everywhere. You don't, you, you think, well, they're not where I am. You know what? They are. They're everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So I'm talking on the, the uh, Skype machine. Yes. Uh, to, to Australia. Okay. All okay. of Australia. Well, whoever's at the house. I see. But I anybody in Australia could come over. In theory, that is true. You know what I mean? Your potential audience is all of Australia. <laughs> That's right. As I understand that island, only like 0.2% of it is habitable for humans. So, right. you know, probably most of them are within earshot. Yeah. There's, there's, there's <laughs> they kind of cram them all to those three cities. So. I don't think there's anybody in the middle part. <laughs> no, no, it's all sheep. Yeah. So what happened is uh, I'm talking to them, you know, and whatnot. And then uh, afterwards, we're we're talking and and so the post talk talking, yeah. And um, th- you know, I was I was sort of joshing them about uh, as their, you do, yeah, as I do. And uh, you enjoy a jape, right? And they mentioned that because uh, I said something about 
eating a kangaroo. Mm. And because uh, pe- people who listen to this podcast know that Jed and I want to eat one of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Before we die. That's a big goal. Yeah. Yeah. And we're working our way up to monkey. Yeah. Uh, that's where, that's kind of like the final course. That's, yeah. It's like the boss battle. Yeah. That's, yeah. you do that, you've done it. Yeah. Well, right. this is the day we find out if anybody at the Department of Fishing and Wildlife listens <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you know, we want it to die of natural causes. As, we don't so want to be forth. cruel. No, it's just, you know, but. You just want to be monkey scavengers. Nothing weird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. right. Why do you have to turn this into something? Awkward and unusual. Well, so I said, you know, I, I want to eat a kangaroo. You know? Yeah. And they said, oh, you can do that. And I got insanely excited. That is pretty cool. And then I then then they said, well, we can't send you a kangaroo carcass. And I said, well, not with an attitude <laughs> like that, you can't. And then I suggested, well, they got to have kangaroo jerky. Sure. Which is perfect, sure. you know. Slap that in an envelope, mail it right along, you yeah. know. Now, there may be, like, a customs and, uh Yes, I think know. that's precisely the reason they have customs. That, that might be, like, the, the, the one of the worst possible violations of yeah. that. But I am mentioning it now because I know they will listen to this later. Right. And they will feel guilty they haven't already sent right. kangaroo jerky. So, you know, just putting that out there. What I'm hearing, avarice, yeah. rebellion, mm-hmm. guilt... Yeah. All part of our inevitable downward slide to episode 600, three score and six. <laughs> the episode here's, of the beast. Here's my question on this is can we, if, if Bon Jovi were to sponsor the podcast holding back, uh, uh, you know, the apocalypse, right. could sure. there just be like a net, like a never ending solo? Like at the end of the song, right. the, 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 you know, the the beast rears its head and everything, but has to sit there and wait on the solo to end. Well, and this right. guitar solo never ends. It's, it's just, it, hold me back. Hold me back. A, it's a solo filibuster, I yes. guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's yeah, it. yeah. That could work. So are we operating in a world where the end of all things in Hellfire and a never-ending Bon Jovi song are different things? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what. If you got a little bit of kangaroo jerky while all that's going down, you could probably, you know what I mean? It'd be yeah. one of those like, hey, this is this is like the seas are boiling yes. and whatnot. On the other hand, though. This 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 kangaroo too is mighty tasty. Absolutely. You know, that's just positivity, man. You that's gotta find what, the silver lining in thank these things. Thank you. That's what I that's what this podcast is all about. To that, positive. Sorry about that. To that end, you know, one of the creatures that gets described in the book of Revelation is something like it's like a horse, but like sure. the stinger of a scorpion. Sure. And I think like the head of a lion. Okay. And I don't think it's really named at all, but right. uh, you know but like jerky of that. Yeah. There I you mean go. you could jerky if, that. If one died of natural causes, because again, I mean, we don't wish harm on demonic hell beasts. Yeah, you're talking about Griffin <laughs> you know, we're, Jerky. We're all. I'm talking about Griffin Jerky. Okay, that, that, it, the, that's what you need. When life serves you apocalypse, yeah. serve up Griffin Jerky. There you if go. If you've that, got 100 pound hailstones, but you're munching on some Griffin, everything's yeah. cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fine. Absolutely. Well. We certainly got all of that. Turn this ship around, man. A lot of angles. <laughs> Going to declare various and multiple emergencies off. But I hope you'll all look forward to our Revelation Babies plushes. Yes. Yep. And 
I'm trying to come up with uh, Jerky of the Beast. I'm going to go Ooh, with that's for the good. name of our yeah. uh, weird cryptozoological <laughs> end times beast jerky products. Yeah. Um, so I hope I hope everyone will, will try them out. I, I, and I hope Mr. Goodman will sponsor both. Yes. Right. Until then, yes. Till we get those vendors up and running, we're going to keep uh, trying to uh, make money through Bridgebox. Yes, it oh. is. It has. We don't have to uh, dry or dehydrate anything, except occasionally uh, we have to bring Jed another Diet Mountain Dew to the music editing. There's yeah. that. But that's that's the opposite of making jerky, really. Right. That's um, right. But your sermons and your songs <laughs> and your uh, Bible studies, all sorts of great stuff based around a topic. We're still in the month of August, where the topic is talking all about hope. So a lot of great stuff there. You want to sign up, missionusa.com slash bridgebox. Only $8 a month. It is the number one best, most awesome way that folks who like the show support what we're doing here in Chicago and what Lee's doing down there with the folks in Tennessee. All right, we're going to jump to our first question here. If you have hang on this all the way to the end, I'll use some ways to get in touch with this. First question comes in anonymously, and it says, I'm married and addicted to pornography and have been for many years. We've had some marital struggles and basically don't have sex anymore. We're going to counseling together. I know I'm loved unconditionally and don't feel condemned, but I can't seem to kick the habit. Chopping off my junk is probably not a good solution, so could you give me some advice on better solutions? He's not saying he's ruling it out. He's saying alternate ideas. It would probably be fairly effective, but... uh... Well... In some things. As I pointed out in the blog post, if our goal is to uh, be restored to a healthy marital sex life, it may not be the the clearest route. That's right. So uh, a lot of good stuff going on there, and we certainly appreciate the the honesty in the question. We we appreciate you being open, and we appreciate how far you've come, which is probably farther than you think towards actually getting this thing kicked. But, Jed, when we look at these kind of uh, behaviors where – but it sounds like our friends done a lot of good work kind of stripping away the emotion, which mm. we talk about a lot, and the guilt on that. And what, how do we keep doing that and get towards some practical realities? That's a great question. Well, we're really glad that you wrote in. Uh, we love you. We believe in you. We're praying for you. Uh, and these are all solvable problems. I think it's really easy to get in a place of feeling doomed, and you're not. And your marriage is not, and your wife is not. These are all things that we can address. Let's shift gears for a second and ask a kind of a hypothetical that a friend of mine and I were talking about recently. If I went to most Christians and I said, I want you to, to think of a sin in your life. You don't have to tell me to do this. Just think of it. The thing that would pop It's into, porn. Yeah, that's right. The, <laughs> oh, the, you said I didn't have to say it? It's all good either way. Okay. I it, said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. In that case, it's unspoken. Ah, very good. <laughs> so if you went to most Christians and you said, you don't have to tell me, Matt, uh, but I, I just... Think of a sin and just you know jot down for yourself the first thing that comes to mind. For a lot of them, it would be porn, for a lot of them. But then, if you ask this question, you said, is that the thing you feel most ashamed about? And is that why it's the first thing that came to mind? Nearly every person you tried that experiment on, if they were honest, would say yes. Yeah. Um, no matter what the sin is, whether it's porn or something else— the thing they feel most shame about is the thing that would first come to mind, guaranteed. Now, here's why I bring that up, is shame is not a good barometer for navigating when to make changes. Shame may point out something that, yes, in the due course of time does need to be addressed and does need to be changed, but shame is a terrible barometer for timing and priority and urgency. 
It actually can't give you that information. So you're describing a situation where you are looking at more pornography than you want to be looking at. And I'm carefully not using the word addiction because that's a loaded and complicated term, particularly when it comes to pornography. But you are – pornography is playing a role in your life that you are not pleased with and you feel like you're not able to make it play another role. And that's impacting your marriage and – it may be connected. It may be separate. We'll find out. But uh, also, you basically have a sexless marriage. Okay. Yes, all of that needs to be addressed. All of that needs to be looked at. Um, all of that in the fullness of time needs to be, um, uh, if, if not fixed, because that's kind of a weird way to look at it, but it needs to be addressed. It needs to be improved. Yes, absolutely. But now the question that we want to ask is, do we know how to fix any of that today? It's one thing to say this is a thing that definitely needs to be addressed and be fixed. It's another to know how to fix it, right? Um, You are going to wind up in your life, both in your life as an individual and in your marriage, with stuff where I know this needs fixing and I can't see a way forward on this. And if it's not something where you have a lot of shame about it, I think you'd be able to think more clearly. I, I think you'd be able to say... We're bound to have a certain number of problems that today we don't have a good solution for. Uh, We want to be engaged in the process of trying to find solutions. We want to talk to subject matter experts. We want to get help where we can. But we also don't want to get bogged down with throwing ourselves, you know, against a wall that we can't get quite over today. So even as we're aware of these problems that do need fixing and we're not quite sure how to move forward on them today – Are there other problems that we can address today, that we can make meaningful progress on? Because if there are, we really want to make progress on those other problems where we can make some headway. Here's here's why this matters. One of the most important things when you're making changes, because making changes is really hard work, is having a sense of morale, having a sense of Mm. we're getting somewhere, having a sense of accomplishment. If you're putting all of your work into a problem where you don't have a good solution and it kind of doesn't seem to be going anywhere, man, that's a recipe for discouragement. Um, And uh, as Matt pointed out in his excellent blog post answering this question, if you get but so discouraged, the next thought in your head is, you know what might make you feel better given how discouraged you are? Mmm, some porn. That'll do it. All right. So we want to manage our emotional state. We want to manage the amount of morale that we have. Yes, this sexual stuff does need to be addressed. We do need to move forward on it. But that's going to be a process. That's not going to be we just flip a switch and it's just it's different now. That's it's going to be a journey and there will be periods where we're not exactly sure how to move forward. If we find these other areas where we can make progress today, A, we're improving other areas of life, which is good. B, we're helping ourselves have more morale. But this is perhaps the most important thing is Success has a way of giving us insights on areas where we don't have success. When we make progress, it has a way of unlocking things in our brain and giving us a new perspective to see things from. If all we see is a gray storm cloud of discouragement and failure, it is so hard to think creatively. And that's the final thing that I would offer here. The solution, not just to this problem, but all the problems in your marriage are creative solutions. All of them. All the solutions are creative solutions. Shame keeps you from being creative. 
Discouragement keeps you from being creative. Fatigue keeps you from being creative. We need to get into a place where we're able to be creative, where we're not being encumbered by shame, we're not being encumbered by discouragement. And again, a big part of that is figuring out what are the areas that we can move forward today and giving ourselves permission to work as a team to address those, even as we're working slowly but surely on these other areas that seem harder to resolve. That's a really fantastic place to start this off. I think Jed covered the emotional landscape of this perfectly. And uh, we talk about navigating the emotional landscape. And I think another thing Jed really did a great job there with is pointing out that that is different than being emotional about something. Yeah. And Leah, I'd love to get you to pick us up here because I think another place where uh, shame and guilt is really going to serve us not well and something that is important to do is when we look for some understanding. I, I agree with Jed, and we sh- I probably should say this top. If you listen to the show for a while, you probably know we don't love talking about pornography in the idea of addiction, um, because that that is a word with a meaning. Um, it, there are probably some people who are addicted to pornography. There's a news story not that long ago by a, a person who bankrupted themselves buying pornography. Like, that's addiction. Because it ruined his life and he couldn't stop. But right. and we're not. This is we're talking. We may be talking about compulsive behavior. We may be talking about coping mechanisms. But one thing where we can look to uh, the world of addiction recovery is pretty much anytime you're trying to make a habitual change like this. It doesn't have to be a change for something you're addicted to. But if you're trying to change a habit. Uh, we spend a lot of time with folks who are doing twelve step programs or working addiction recovery, and uh, it's it's a good place to look. And Lee, with that in mind, one of the important things about that is understanding what they would call triggers. Yeah, which is being able to look at something and as as Jed is pointing out in a kind of a dispassionate way, saying when I am around these people or feeling this way or doing this thing, that tends to up the the uh, the possibility of this happening. So how do we? examine that in a way without getting too caught up in the, uh, the emotion to, to really get some help on that. Well, I think that's a great way to ask the question. And, and part of this kind of goes back to um, something that Jed was saying earlier. I, I loved how he, how he talked about morale. And morale is a different thing than, um, than the thing people usually try to, to uh, muster when they're when they're trying to make changes like this, which is the thing that people usually try to do is to turn the shame into willpower. Um, they usually try to turn the the guilty feelings into some kind of fuel. I feel so terrible about this that this time I'm gonna make it work. That kind of emotion is not the same thing. Like what Jed's talking about is having having a, a positive morale that's going to carry you through the very difficult grind of uh, making changes over a long period of time and something that has become compulsive or something that's become habitual. You do need that. You need you need accomplishable goals that you can see, that you can measure, that you can that that are are going to, you know, the kinds of things that are going to make you feel like I'm doing this, this is happening. But the thing that won't help in this is the idea of, I'm just going to grit my teeth and I'm just going to make it out this time because I feel so terrible about what I've done. And so I'm going to turn that into the fuel that I need. That won't work. And so exactly like Matt is saying, the thing that we can look at with, with some addiction recovery things, when we're looking at habitual behaviors is, um, they have some really, really helpful thing, ways of understanding stuff, which is um, 
I can look at my behavior from a dispassionate place. Yeah, I, I'm I'm involved in something that that does that has made me feel bad, and that that is 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 not a good thing, and it may it may have you know uh, adverse effects on my marriage and stuff like that. But if I'm going to get past it, I've got to be able to look at this in a cold way as I am coping in a certain way. I'm medicating something in my life, and the deeper question that I need to ask if I'm going to get past this is why. Why am I doing this? Um, typically, what people think with pornography is it's just a sex thing. But the, th- the thing that actually starts to happen when you start to dive deeper into this is that people find out it has so much to do with other things. It has to do, it has to do with boredom. It has to do with a sense of failure at work. It has to do with uh, problems with self-esteem. It has to do with um, com- comparison. and all. It has to do with all kinds of things, that, different things that people are coping with emotional things in their life, and something happens at work, or something happens at school, or something happens in a relationship, and exactly using the word that Matt used, it triggers this thing of the way that I can feel better about this problem in my life, the quickest, fastest way, is through this behavior. And so what we've got to look at is what are some healthy alternatives to deal with the very real problems that I have in my life that are causing me to go into this behavior. But we can't go anywhere on that until we've actually figured out, why am I doing this? One way that we can figure that out is we can start to ask the question, when is this happening? Is there any kind of pattern to what to this behavior that I'm doing. I was talking to um, I was talking to a, a young guy recently, and he was trying to make changes in the same area in his life. And I said, why don't, for a while, why don't you just start keeping track of when this happens? And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you're, there's bound to be a pattern to it. And he was like, there's no way there's a pattern to it. And I said, okay, well, just humor me for, for a week or so. And then in a couple of weeks, I'll ask you about it. And within four days, the guy texted me and he said, oh my gosh, it's the exact same time every day. I never realized that before. And I was like, what do you know? When is it? And then he found out exactly, it was exactly after this one thing happened, this was the very next thing that he did. And so all of a sudden we're like, okay, now we know what the trigger is, when the trouble spot is, and when the toughest time of day for you to get through is. So now we can, we can come up with some creative ideas, try some stuff out and see if that makes a change. And I'm your support guy and I'll be supporting you through that time of day. And we had that thing licked in no time. I mean, it was one of those deals where he had no idea that there was a pattern to it. He had no idea why he was doing it. But we can't figure that out if we just think, I do this because I'm a horrible person. That won't get us anywhere. We have to look at why am I doing this and what is the... what. What is the hurt that I'm trying to heal? What is the uh, what is the hunger that I'm trying to feed? And is there another way that I can attack this problem? And we can do that in a dispassionate way and start to look at uh, how do I take care of situations when I'm hungry, when I'm angry, when I'm lonely, when I'm tired. That's a that's an acronym that that uh, recovery. Uh, programs use. It's called HALT, H-A-L-T, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. And we can start to look at how do we react in those types of situations. This is how we start to move past this. And it feels kind of like a cold and calculated thing, but we can't get through this by the power of willpower or emotion. We've got to start calculating, why am I doing this? And how can I change these behaviors in in strategic and exactly as Jed said, creative ways? 
that is all really fantastic stuff. And it's also uh, the story Lee told there is a really good uh, illustration of a, another point we would definitely make, which is you got to have somebody who's not your wife to talk to about this. Yeah. Uh, preferably a pastor, a mentor, but if it's a good friend, if you want to email us, that's all, it's all great. But you got to have somebody. That's the quickest way to this kind of dispassionate analysis is to have someone on the outside, preferably someone who's heard enough of these stories to know that, and I mean this in the kindest possible way, you are not special. Right. This is not a unique right. uh, thing in the history of sinning. It's just a problem that needs a solution, right. as you guys have talked about. And Glenn, there's, 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 these are all, in the grand scheme of life, these are some relatively easy fixes. Sure, yeah. These are pointing out. I mean, it's always hard to change a habit, but there are just plug and play. You, you've noticed the symptoms. Talk to somebody about how to do it. You plug it in, and that happens. Mm-hmm. There's another more complicated aspect of this, which we have not talked about, which we probably should, is you're married. Right. And now, we not only do you got to fix your thing, which is important, because yeah. it's not getting you where you want to go in life. Again, we're, right. aside from any judgment, guilt, morality, even Christianity, just right. you want something in life, which is a healthy, happy sex life and marriage. They're not getting that, and this is at least yeah. part of the reason why. So we need yeah. to deal with that, but we also need to deal with the marriage part. Yeah. And going back to maybe originally uh, Judge's original point about prioritization, that's kind of a thing where we do have to start working on both at the same time and how they interrelate. So how do we address that? Well, I think the the important thing, uh, I think uh, it, it's it's good for us to give context for the stuff that we talk about on the show, because uh, I think we can sometimes come off uh, uh, sort of glib in a certain way about some of these things, and it's because we hear the exact same thing over and over and over and over again, and, the, and it falls into certain patterns that are very, very, very similar from person to person. The difference is really important, so you you tend to almost tune out the pattern, just look for the mm-hmm. little details that kind of can often... Like if, someone, if you were getting directions from someone, you would skip over the part you know. If yeah. you're looking at like a recipe or something, right. you yeah. say, well, yeah, I know to get the water boiling. Let's skip to yeah, the part yeah. that I don't yeah. know about yeah. this particular uh, recipe. That's right. So uh, it's it, so part of it is that uh, we so I get a, a very significant number of men come to me and say I'm addicted to porn, and I say, do you have a job and money and uh, a life? Yes. Okay. Then you're not a sex addict. You're not a porn addict. That if you were using porn at work and got fired because of that. That's more of what we're talking about. And that involves you taking leave of absence, finding a facility where they, I assume, fit you with some form of harness (laughs) (laughs) to keep you from interfering with yourself, as my Irish grandmother would say. But uh, if we're not there, what we have is a a habit we have a really hard time of breaking. Then my next standard boilerplate question is, how often are you having sex with your wife? The answer to that, 99.9% of the time, is almost never. And then the next question after that is, did we have uh, in our courtship uh, engagement, you know, the, the period leading up to the marriage, do we have a lot of good discussion about that? Do we map it out well? Did we look forward to that? Did we figure out ways of being creative with that? Did we find uh, and ensure that that was going to be healthy? No, we never talked about it. No, we didn't deal with that. There was shame and guilt and feelings and things. And I, the, I was confessing things in my past and what I, what websites I was looking at, and she was horrified, and we all just felt icky about it. And then we got married. And you won't believe it, we had problems from there. <laughs> so uh, when you hear that a lot, a lot, a lot, you, you, you tend to, to 
kind of redirect people a little more uh, with a little more uh, emphasis because uh, we I've been down this road before. So that's where we're coming from here. I would say here's the thing is if you're looking at you aren't having sex, that's a problem. That's forget about the porn part. That's the problem. Yeah. Uh, it sounds weird and it does not sound Christian, but I promise you it is. Sex is super, 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 super important to your marriage. Yep. If you're not having it, that's a problem. Pull over to the side of the road. Let's figure that out. Now, none of that, if you can dig what I'm trying to say, none of that needs to have shame in any part of it. And the thing is, when we say porn, the, the next thing is shame off of that. You don't you don't go to your friends and say, man, I was looking at some really great porn last night. It's just you don't. <laughs> You hide it, and that creates a shame reaction, and now this is all, you, we can't talk to anybody about it, we can't talk to our, our pastor about it, that kind of thing. And if we do talk to a pastor about it, we have to put it in sin terms, you know. That's a problem. What you need here is counseling on your sex life. You probably need to be looking at somebody who specializes in that, <clears throat> particularly if, if the problem is this bad. Uh, you know, we've had marital uh, struggles and basically don't have sex anymore. We need to deal with the marital structure uh, struggles, and we need to get back to having sex. Uh, porn becomes because it is there's a shame element of that. We can vilify elements of that. We can get all wound up about it. But let's actually talk about what it's doing in this situation. It's become a, a way to avoid dealing with a problem. I don't have to work this out with my wife. I've got this uh, website, you know, whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a problem. We, yeah. we need to deal with, with the actual wife in this situation. The first thing I think I want to know is, is the, is the pornography a symptom of the problem or the cause of the problem? Yeah. M- my guess is that it's a symptom of the problem, that we're, we're just having, you might just be arguing, and then, you know, would be weird to have an intimate sexual encounter at the end of that argument or something like that. So uh, we need to, you know, not think of porn as a thing driving or contributing to this problem. There's a there's a problem. This is simply the symptom, and that should motivate us to focus on the problem. Um, <clears throat> but you need to reboot fully. I would really encourage you in this. You need to really fully reboot everything both of you are thinking about sex from beginning to end. The whole I, I would just take every thought and feeling and whatever you have about sex and get just scrub it out. We're just starting over from scratch and rebuild it. You and your wife and God and the Bible, you sit down and you say, what should sex be doing? When should we, how should we do it? So for example, I think this you, one of the things you're going to come back to is serving one another. If you're having problems in your marriage, here's what here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're the husband, you say to the wife, do you want me to take out the trash? Well, you don't have to, but if you feel like it, no, I'm just saying I would be happy to take out the trash. Do you want me to take out the trash? I, I want to serve you in this area. You're building trust. You're communicating. You're talking about your needs and whatever. It's a little thing, but you start at the beginning and you work. What else can I help with and whatever? Uh, bad marriages always do this. I'm the only one doing anything. And you turn to the other one, the other one says, I'm the only one doing anything. Are you kidding me? So (laughs) that's people who aren't serving one another. You start serving one another, and this is a big area where you need to be serving one another. And and so I would give you you permission to take this on 
as a thing that is more than just scratching an itch. It is more than a, a moral thing that you could freak out about or a sin area or an addiction or any of these other things. It's a symptom of a deeper problem, and it's not an unsolvable problem. You get in there and do that work, I promise you this can turn around a lot faster than you think Amen. it can. It's a great point. All these guys gave you a lot of really, really excellent stuff on every aspect of that problem. And we, we do want to point out, um, it's a common one. Yeah. It's maybe <clears throat> the most common thing we hear, uh, particularly from male-type people, but a lot, a lot of women, too. It's, and again, uh, one of the reasons we can get past the, the shame on that is you combine uh, fiber-optic cable and uh, limitless free supply of pictures of attractive naked people. This is pretty much what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and the, the one construct I want to I point out that all these guys pointed to, and you, you heard the word problem a lot, and it's just a much more useful way of looking at this. Um, we can we, we think we were, we were joking in the last episode about the, the kind of the uber churchy thing of you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and it's what you deserve and your punishment. Like, yeah, but he took it. Yeah, but you deserve well, Yeah, but he took it. And this is a good example of that dynamic of the whole punishment for the if, if, if the sin is a, the problem. Sin's been taken care of. We don't have to worry about the sin part anymore. In a theological, universal sense, that actually doesn't have an effect on our life anymore. So what we're left with is a functional problem that's between us and the life we want to live. And that's a problem with a solution. Um, that solution will be custom to you. You definitely want to, we super want to encourage you to keep uh, seeing the counselor. We definitely want to encourage, as Glenn mentioned, uh, to think about at some point seeing a non-Christian counselor who focuses on sexual health, who will give you just the full-on, straight-up mechanical realities of situations. That's a good thing, too. But this is not a this is not a sin problem. It's a problem intertwined with sin, but the sin part is taken care of. Right. Which le- and so we don't have to be emotional about that. You are not grieving the heart of God. You don't need to keep a shame journal every time you engage in this so you can really just remember how bad you felt. Like Lee was saying, let that propel you, which is real advice I've heard well-meaning people give. This is a problem that has a solution. And a lot of, a lot of what we talk about with the getting rid of the shame and guilt is because it will stop you from seeing it that way. If this is, a, if this is an intractable uh, reality and offspring of your sin nature, then you're just screwed. And that's and now, as as Joe was pointing out, we go that now we just need coping mechanisms. You know, it's a great coping mechanism, free porn. <laughs> um, but if you if we keep that goal in mind and keep that morality guy talked up, then you can apply all these this really good insight these guys gave you. And as ever, if you have follow up questions, if you want to tell us how it's going, all that, feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Set podcast gmail dot com. We move on to our second question. Here it comes in anonymously, and it says. I had a boundaries conversation with my parents. It went pretty good. They apologized for some things, not everything, but I don't feel like they heard everything I said. The thing is, I kind of don't know where to go from here. I was mentally prepared for a blow up fight or a tearful apology, but this landed in the middle. So what now? And it's a great question. And Lee, why don't you kick us off? Well, it is a great question. We're proud of you for uh, for for you know starting this process and having that conversation. It's a tough thing to do, especially when you're assuming that it's going to be this big, huge uh, yelling and screaming fight. Um, and then the problem, as as you say in the question, is you're either thinking it's going to be one or the other. Either it's going to be you know a world war inside our home, or 
there's it's going to be the end of a Disney movie where everybody's crying and the you cue the uh, violins and the beautiful music and then we're all uh, friends at the end. The problem with some with with tough conversations is that you gear yourself up for one of those things. Uh, you emotionally gear yourself up for kind of bracing yourself for impact for this for this thing to be this big, huge, awful thing, and then um, you're so fired up that you actually did it that what can happen is if a conversation like this lands in the middle, you can be so emotionally relieved that the blow up fight didn't happen that you're eager to make peace. Um, and the thing that I would say is. When it comes to whatever your lines that you've decided in your boundary, I don't know what the specific situation is. I don't know what we're talking about here. But if you have gotten to a place where you've realized, this is my boundary line. Um, One thing that you'll hear us say all the time about boundaries on this show is that a boundary describes what you will put up with. This is not you um, trying to control someone else's behavior, but it's you letting the people in your life know this is what I will put up with, and I will not put up with X or Y or Z or whatever it is. So whatever you've decided that that line is, the, the, my main encouragement for you is do not deviate from that line. Uh, you have to remain firm on what that boundary is going to be. You don't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be a harsh conversation. It may be. But you do have to be firm about this because if someone feels like they have given a little bit, they've, they've met you halfway, then they might be expecting you to meet them halfway and change what your boundary line is going to be. But if you've already made that, if you've already made your mind up of what that boundary is going to be, that is a key thing where you may still have a tough conversation ahead. Uh, and, and I think that's a hard thing because you gear yourself up for these conversations and then you get through it. And it's so relieving to have done that, to have, to have prepared yourself for it, to go in there and, and boldly say what you wanted to say. And then we had it and, and we didn't die and everything seems to be okay. And yet I don't know if they really heard me. Um, and, and, and then there's this temptation and I do think it's a temptation. There's a temptation to go ahead and make peace so that you never have to go in there again. You never have to have that conversation again. And the problem there is that a boundary conversation is almost never fun. And and the encouragement that I would have is, um, hey, one thing that you've learned about yourself is you can do this. You can go in there and have a tough, uncomfortable conversation when you need to. The temptation is that if you give in on your line, that you will preserve the relationship. But that's not actually true. The boundary that you're setting up is going to make the relationship better. So stay firm on that boundary. Do it in a kind way. It doesn't have to be harsh, but it does have to be firm. And, and, and we believe in you. We believe you can do this. Just, just, because, uh, just because it kind of moved to the middle this time, it doesn't mean that you have to automatically make peace, uh, that you have to automatically give all your ground. You can do what it takes to set and maintain those boundaries, which is really in the end going to be better for your relationship. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely right. It's a really fantastic place to start out. And I'd love you to pick us up there because I'm really glad this question came in because um, we we have we give a lot of advice on the show, which is you need to have the conversation, you need to draw the boundary. Yeah. And it turns out there's so little of that going on in the wider Christian world that um, that's kind of as much as we give people because that's what they're asking about. They're asking about the situation. And that's the answer. But I really like, I think because 
in the bell curve of the way things happen, uh, what our friend in the question is describing is a vast percentage of, especially those first time conversations. So, right. um, we you talk about this. I, th- I think people are often surprised at how much the other side is willing to cede. Right. Even though it's not nothing. Right. And I think Lee's making a very good point there that that can feel like just disconcerting. Yeah. Of either I need to d- double down. Right. Really press my advantage yes. in a chess way. Yeah, yeah. Or I need to just quit and be super happy. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is a good example. Of, if you walk through there, a, even a good, healthy boundary setting is going to have some aspects of follow-up and pushback and all yeah. sorts of stuff. And can you walk us through the realities of that? Yeah, here's the, the one simple idea we want to latch on to. Almost everyone pushes boundaries sooner or later. <laughs> yeah. So I will need to set a boundary with m- almost everybody in my life at one point or another. And it would be absurd for me to think I only need to do that once right. with anybody. That's just not reality. Uh, you know, uh, my sister has uh, twin uh, kids. They just uh, started school. Uh, they are the most adorable children on the planet. I'm a little bit prejudiced because I'm their <laughs> uncle. But they are super, super adorable. And one of the things that she was sort of talking, uh, you know, what what sort of parenting tips or whatever. I said, well, I have no parenting tips for you. I, you know, I don't have children, so I can't tell you. But I have dealt with a lot of delinquent juvenile behavior for many, many years. So I can tell you how to keep them out of the jailhouse. And here's what it is. Recognize that children push boundaries mm-hmm. 100% of the time yeah. and decide now that's not a bad thing. You know, sure, a, a guy sitting on a rock staring into space doesn't push anybody's boundaries anywhere. He also doesn't get anything done. He doesn't have a life. He, he's, he's, he doesn't have a home. He just has the rock. That's it. You know, people who are driven and passionate and motivated, they're living life to the fullest with zeal and well, they 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 are pushing boundaries within themselves. They're, you know, straining relationships, straining their physical limitations, all of that, and that's healthy. What's unhealthy is when you don't recognize boundaries and you don't keep uh, don't recognize when you're overloaded and you don't put yourself in check and you don't let other people put you in check. That's when it becomes unhealthy. So what I worked on with her was don't resent it when you have to set a boundary. Wake up every day assuming I'm going to be setting boundaries today nice. with these children. And I'm not angry with them that I have to do that because I expect it. And it's not a bad thing that I have to set the boundary. It's a good thing. It's good for them. They they feel more secure. They feel more safe. They trust that someone's minding this crazy madhouse we're all living in. So that's good. Well, it's the same thing with setting boundaries with anybody else. I assume I'm going to have to do this multiple times. I, so I'm not gearing up for one shot where we cover everything, everything's perfect. I'm I, I'm not worried about having to follow up on that later. But here's the thing. The thing, when I lay the boundary down, is I want you to hear me and understand what I'm talking about. Here Now, you if you do that and you, you onboard that information and you regulate your behavior, that's all I care about. People, some people, when they hear uh, hear that, they need to get defensive because that's just how they are processing it. Some people need to act like they didn't hear it; they heard it, but they're just acting like they're ignoring it. You know, so they're sort of compartmentalizing this stuff in funny, different ways, and whatever have you. 
<coughs> but you were in the room when I said it, so I'm holding you accountable to it. <laughs> That's how that works. You can pretend all you want. You heard me say that. that I'm not falling for that. That's just another boundary. They're, they're pushing that boundary all over again. Well, you, you said it, but you said it like casual. No, I didn't. That's the boundary. You heard it. Well, but I think I should get an exception. No, no. And I'm not mad because that's the, you had to try things. There's nothing wrong with trying something. I don't resent you for it. I try things with God all the time. I'm looking for loopholes every day. So I, I, don't have to, I don't have to be negative towards that. I don't have to be worried about it because I'm geared up for it. I, I, I accept that that's part of this dynamic. But the, the point I want to leave you with is um, the problem that we always get into with confrontation is what might happen. The devil can do a lot with that fear of mm. what might happen. And he can keep you from confronting people. When you don't do that, you're enabling them. And enabling hurts everybody. It hurts the person you're enabling. And obviously, they're going to hurt you with their, with their behavior and stuff. Uh, there's ne- that's the worst possible thing we can do here. If you want to know what might happen, the worst what might happen is if you don't do anything. So we know we have to do something, but if, we have a, 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 if we're communicating clearly and we're operating on no fear, because if, if I'm telling you afraid, you sense my fear, and now you're going to go for the jugular on that. That's you're right. going to say, oh, he doesn't really believe what he's saying, so I can push back now. So no fear, clearly communicate. No anger with this, because this is part of relationships. There's nothing devastating or wrongs happening here. And look for a shift in behavior. People get hurt when, they're, when, when you put a boundary, and that's okay. They, and it, give them space to be uh, funky about that as long as they respect the boundary. Hey, it's a really great point. And, Jed, I'd love you to kind of give us the, the going forward on this. Sure. Another thing we talk about a lot on the show is the idea of uh, having reasonable expectations going yeah. into the situation. It sounds like, I, I don't know if our friend did a good job on that or not. I think we can give him a lot of slack because if you've never done this before, it's hard to have too much reasonable expectation sure. for what it's going to feel like in the moment. But what are the r- managed expectations for the, rela- the relationship with our folks going forward from this conversation? It's a great question. We're proud of you for taking these steps. So let's let's talk about what comes next. You know, if you can dig it, you kind of had a two-part conversation with your parents. Part of it was, yes, asserting boundaries. It was saying, these are things I'm not okay with. These are things I'm not going to put up with. But the other thing that you were having, even if you didn't know it, was a bit of an exploratory conversation on how much of this behavior are you guys actually married to? Like, mm-hmm. how much of this are you trying to be on? And I think what you found out is some of it, oh, no, well, that's, that's bad. We shouldn't do that. We're not trying to be on that. And other parts are like, no, that's how we are. So that's, that's, that's what it is. Now, this is actually valuable information. Now, I agree with everything that these fellows have already said. You know, your boundaries are your boundaries. You need to not change them. But they are, in, in essence, the stuff where they're not apologizing for it they are setting expectations for you. They're telling you what you can and cannot count on them to do or not do in the future. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Suppose that you had to sit down and you said, whenever we interact, you guys, you're 45 minutes late, uh, which is like really rude and disrespectful, and you have this really biting, sarcastic humor that I hate. I I really need you to, to not do that moving forward. Now, suppose your parents say, you know what, it is rude for us to be late. 
and we are sorry, and we, we, you, we, you can count on us to try and do a better job. We really will, and, and we're sure that's, that's frustrating, and, and we are going to really try and do that. Great, fantastic, awesome. But now they're supposed to say, now in terms of this biting, sarcastic humor, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Look, I mean, we, we are the way we are. We, you know, we tease the people we love, and if you can't handle that, well, I just, I just don't know what to tell you. All right. I'm so sorry. Yeah, so sorry. For all that biting sarcasm. Captain Sensitive's having a rough time. Okay, so again, we kind of have two things going on here. The first is, again, your asserting boundaries was never about making them act or not act a certain way. It was about asserting what you will put up with. That's right. If they start with the, with the biting sarcastic humor, you leave. That's it. That that was the point of this conversation right. was I am letting you know the stuff I'm not going to hang around for. And when that starts, I'm going to leave. That that was kind of part one. But part two, again, was what what should I expect out of you guys moving forward? Because, uh, again, how much of this are you actually married to? In In the hypothetical that we're talking about, you know, it's something where they will try to be on time. Will they do that perfectly? No, but it's Glenn saying, if you see any kind of a good faith effort, we want to meet people halfway and recognize they're trying to make an improvement and that's, and that's good. Uh, and, and we, and we like that, but it also means that it's probably not a reasonable expectation that the humor is going to change at all, at least in the short term. Um, when it begins, you should stand up and leave. And when they say, Hey, where, where are you going? You say, you know why I'm leaving. You know where I'm going. I don't like that humor. I'm not going to hang around for that. What? I was. It? It's a witch hunt. I don't even know. Why do you hate laughter? Exactly right. Exactly right. And maybe that gets their attention. Maybe it doesn't. In a sense, it doesn't matter because you're not being subjected to the awful treatment. So it, it's really neither here nor there. But again, it's important to have expectations that are grounded in reality. And your parents are letting you know what to expect moving forward. Some of this we agree with you. We need to not do. We'll try and make a change. Others, we do not agree with you. We're going to keep on doing that. And so that takes us back to Lee saying, um, that yes, we will undoubtedly need to continue to articulate boundaries, but we will need to enforce them. Just as importantly, it means I, when this stuff starts, I leave. When this stuff starts, I don't come around. It's up to you to figure out what the enforcement strategy is, but they, you know what to expect out of them now. So now it's how, how do we strategize that enforcement part of it? It's all really great stuff. And we definitely want to be clear that we, as I think as, as Glenn pointed out, it's, it's good for to you, for you to understand where we're coming from as we give some of this advice. Um, we know, we understand and know that uh, the idea of sit down with the people who raised you and tell them why their behavior is unacceptable and you shan't be putting up with it anymore is a tough conversation to have. Yeah. We also know that people need, uh, when we people talk to us in, in normal life, in our day jobs, or even you know on the email or whatever with the podcast, they need a lot of nudging that that is actually the right choice of action. So when we tell someone about setting boundaries, we're kind of doing that our own self by telling them this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be hard. I know it'll be hard, and we sympathize. This is what you need to do. Right. We don't want to, we don't want to ever re- read like that. That is a simple thing or something we we take lightly. We know it's not, but as hopefully as you uh, describe, you discovered when you sat and do it, it is the right move. So we we try to be uh, clear and firm in our uh, in our assertion that you need to be clear and firm. But we do understand that it's tough. We do understand that it always leads to a murky waters to navigate. And we love to we would love to be here on the other side of that for you. All right, we move on to our final question here. It comes in honestly. This question says, what is spiritual authority and who has it? Uh, Glenn Watch kicks off. Uh God has it. Oh. Not you. 
So that's uh, that's who. But what? But what if I like went to school? Yeah. No. Uh, God what if has it was like a really really good school. Yeah. No. 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 Uh, God has all the authority. Uh, uh, here's the thing: is uh, God's the boss, and we're. Uh, I think we need to be fair. That for most of us, on some level, we are all together not okay with that. <laughs> there, there are there are billions of people who study the Bible because deep down they're saying, "I can find a way to obey the letter of what's in this book and still do what I want." And then God has to be okay with it because I I worked an angle here. They wouldn't be able to say that out loud consciously, but that's deep down where they're thinking. Or if, I, if I'm studying this text and pulling out the best ideas from it, I'm kind of like on the committee. Right. Like right. I was on the what's right. You know, I, 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 I implemented it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, this is cutting God out of the conversation. And there, that happens all the time in religious communities for sure. Uh, it, it, much of religion is a way of you doing your thing, and and God just has to sign the bottom line on it. So I think we have to admit that that all of us have that. Uh, but I think there is a, a certain type of person where you tell them, "Okay, you're the man. You have authority because you're a man," and they say. Thank goodness it's about time. That's where we get a problem. Uh and I think it's equally a problem when it's I you know, I I I don't feel as though I, I didn't necessarily uh orchestrate this, but now it's happening, I'm gonna use it to full effect, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it all becomes the same thing. Here's what I'm saying. Craving control and having power. Using that power to control things, that's a sin. Craving that in that way, Amen. that's bad. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what you want to say is, wait, what if I want to control us all into something good and righteous? Well, uh, the, uh, again, I appreciate the, the, the loophole search here, but you're nowhere near, dude. That's... We're winning souls, Glenn. Winning <laughs> yeah. souls. Yeah, no. You know, they don't usually refer to it as a chaste desire for power. There, there's right. a different word they use. What would that I word be? I think they call it a lust for power. Oh, we illustrative. Did, we, we just covered lust uh, earlier on the show. Indeed this we did. Same and the corrosive, deal. life-ruining effect it can have. That's right. And here's the thing. There's a ton of that in Christian culture. A ton. And no sense there might be something wrong with that. Because, again, I picture myself as pushing us towards something good. So if, if you what if I was in charge of a movement? <laughs> that's right. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Here here's the deal. You might look at someone who's living a lifestyle that you don't like. If the next thought in your mind is we ought to pass a law to make them stop, <laughs> that's you craving power that you can exercise to make people do what you want them to do. That's the opposite of what God does with free will and good news and giving us the choice to make our own decisions, right or wrong, and it's often wrong. Uh, but God appeals to us. He comes to us. He says, uh, come, let us reason together. Uh, you having that lust for control, that lust for power, and it can seep in, and you cannot realize that it's there 
until you feel yourself wielding it and enjoying it in a way that's really unhealthy. And that's when you need to stop and pull up and say, God is the authority in my household. End of story. Now, he may give to me a an agenda, a goal, for example, that the house needs to achieve. You know, so the Lord may come and say, okay, here's here's what's going on. Uh, you know, we need to save up some money and go on a short, short-term missions trip this summer. Uh, but that's also about everybody else pray about that and and make sure that we're going to the right place, make sure I have all the details right. So even within that, we're, we're, we're all involved in that process. But God's the one that's in authority. I might be trying to fulfill that, but I'm really only getting that from the Lord. And I'm asking everybody else to hold me accountable. You pray it up th- to make sure you get the same answer. That's, that's how uh, godly leadership looks like. Um, it's, it, it, you know, part of this is also recognizing that the lust for power is, uh, in that, that, that sense of control is pointless to go after anyway because it's an illusion. People will do whatever they want to do. You think you have this whole household in check, but if they're just going along and suppressing their anger and frustration and whatever else it is, eventually that bubble's going to pop and they're going to they're gonna go their own way. Uh, so you, you, you can't just continuously muscle people into things. That's not Christian. Christian leaders serve. And here's what I want to want to get Amen. you to think about. If I just if I just told you Christian leaders serve and that thought didn't turn you on, you need to think about <laughs> I got to pull over and rethink this thing. Yeah. Christian leaders serve. Now, here's the thing, when I talk to pastors uh, about leadership and uh, talking about what's going wrong with them, almost always the answer is a servant-related thing. Well, you know, uh, I, you know, I, we were just talking earlier today. I want my church to grow. Okay, can you transport these people to this meeting? Well, I don't know. Uh, well, then you're not prepared to serve them. If, if you won't right. put them in your car, drive them to this thing, or get a church van and recruit a volunteer and whatever, and do whatever it takes to make this happen, then you're not going to have the people... So what are we talking about here? Well, I just wanted them to come and and watch me talk and tell me I'm cool. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's nothing. I mean, nobody wants that. That's you know, <laughs> if, if, if but we have we we have a breakdown in this process when the leader doesn't think I am beneath everybody else here and I left them up so that they can do better. Uh, if you if that idea doesn't turn you on, you need to definitely not be in any kind of leadership, and you need to address those the that that temptation that you're buying into because we 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 all have that on some level. Amen. I think that's a really great place to start this off. And Leah, I'd love to get you to look, let's look at a little bit of the other side of this because as Glenn uh, rightfully and uh, sagely pointed out there, anyone who would describe themselves as having spiritual authority should not have it for uh, they're after something else. But there, there is a, an idea here that I think is good, which is there are people who um, have earned a spot, not been given a spot from on high, but earned a spot for you to, uh, I guess the, the, the function over this maybe to listen to what they say, basically. And it's, uh, that should not, as, as Glenn's pointing out, come 
uh, from a, a degree or denomination, but it is something that we do need in our lives. So how do we look at the other side of this of people who have what we're describing here, but w- might not use these words to say it? Well, the first place to start is exactly where Glenn left off. I mean, Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's exactly what I am. And you see me as somebody serving. So if you're not serving, then you're not on what I'm on. Um, He was very clear. One thing that we can say about the type of leaders that um, that we should follow and listen to, exactly as you're asking is not not only what Glenn was saying about looking at somebody who serves, um, somebody who somebody who in humility um, is the shoulders that everybody else stands on, but also Jesus pointed out another thing in Matthew chapter twenty three. He said, um, "When you look at what the Pharisees are telling you to do, he said, there's stuff that they're saying that you've got to do." But whatever you do, don't do. I mean, there's stuff that they're saying that you got. You have to listen to what they say. Whatever you do, don't do what they do, because they don't do the same things that they say. And that was a very clear thing that the people that you need to listen to are the people whose lives line up with their words. So not just that that the you know spiritual leaders worth listening to are not just people who serve and in humility are the shoulders that everybody else stands on that that lift other people up but they're also people whose words and lives line up together because there's all kinds of folks who want that spiritual authority who want to be followed who want to be listened to who say all kinds of stuff and Jesus said but when you look at their life you don't see the same thing so I want to, you know, the person that I go to, the person that I listen to, the person I go to for wisdom needs to be somebody whose life lines up with the things that they're saying. So if somebody wants to be in a place of spiritual leadership, but they don't have healthy friendships, or they don't have a healthy marriage, or they don't have healthy relationships with people who are, you know, under them or people who are uh, peers, that I should be suspect about that. That's a that's a very clear thing that that Jesus was talking about. And the other thing is is if somebody is talking to me about some kind of spiritual principle, but they have no um experience in that, that's not somebody I'm listening to either. I want to I don't want to just read books because, you know, somebody is a pastor or something like that. Um I I saw one time recently somebody that it was a couple of famous preachers they wrote a book about discipleship, and uh, people were talking about this book, and all of the examples that they used in the book were uh, short-term mission trips that they had gone on in other countries where they had a translator. And this was a book about discipleship. And then you realize, well, these are mega church pastors. They have thousands of people in their church. The only examples they have when they're talking about discipleship are uh, people they just met that they're being translated to. They've never actually done any discipling. So here we have the, the book that everybody's excited about in discipleship from two megachurch pastors who have never discipled a soul, because if they had, they would have told those stories. So I need somebody who has the humility to serve. I need somebody whose lives and whose words line up, and I can see that, and it's clear as a bell. And I need somebody that if they're giving me wisdom, they have real experience on the things that they're talking to me about, that they're trying to get me on. I can see it in their life. They know what they're talking about because they've been there and they've done that thing. Amen. That's very, very good stuff. And Jed, let me get you to close out here. Let's look at another aspect of this, which is um, there are almost certainly 
whoever wrote this, this question, and I think it applies to everybody, there are almost certainly people in whom you recognize spiritual authority in your life. Sure. It may be a friend. It might be, a, hopefully, it's your pastor. It may be uh, four monkeys on a podcast for reasons that are not clear to anyone else. But I think we're willing that uh, we can reverse engineer some of this, which is, you know someone has spiritual authority in your life when what? Ah, ah. Well, here's the, the bottom line question is, have they earned it? Have they earned a spot in your life? So um, when I read the, what does spiritual authority mean and who has it? I, I, my initial response was, I have no idea. What are you talking about? So um, this is the only verse I could find in the Bible that... If we let Jed be in charge, it'd be a shorter podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the only verse I could find in the Bible that, that kind of related. I'm going to read you the message version. This is Hebrews 13, 17. Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of their leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? That's a cool passage. Let's highlight three things here. Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the condition of your lives. Okay, so the first question is, um, is this person alert to the condition of your life? Do they know what's going on with you? Because if not, they're not your pastor. There's no way for them yeah. to be your pastor. That's right. Any any more than a doctor who's not examined you can be your doctor. Doesn't work that way. Doctor Oz is my doctor. He's not. That's really the key and important thing. Um, <laughs> he talks to me all the time through well, the magic box. Well, he he does talk to he talks to a lot of other people too, though. Well, I don't know about that. Right. So just so we're clear, your doctor needs to be a person who knows you. And right. uh, has physical contact with you. Same way, um, your pastor needs to know what's going on in your life. Um, and then on top of that, exactly like both Glenn and Lee were saying, they need to serve you. The, the qualification for pastor is washes your feet. We yeah. can lose sight of that because that's become a religious ceremony. In first century Palestine, that was the grossest job a person could do. That was the lowest most, uh, just the, the worst job a person can have. Jesus did it to prove a point. That would be the rough equivalent of going and cleaning someone's toilet for them. Um, your pastor needs to have that level of servant attitude towards you to have earned the spot as your pastor. Uh, but now here is the other side of this, is that passage in Hebrew says, listen to their advice. So the question is, when people earn that spot, do you give their advice a fair shake? Do you do that? Because that's the other side of this equation. And as a really cool illustration of that, we can go back to the story Lee was sharing in our first question today. Here's the thing about being a pastor to people is when you do know them and you are serving them, you are invested in their life, you're going to have to give a fair amount of advice that feels like it's coming out of left field to that person. That's just the way that this works. There's a lot of really, really good advice that, that just sounds weird. And Lee gave us a perfect example of that. We've got a young fellow who's having trouble looking at naughty things online, and he's, he's overcome with shame, and he's overcome with, with um, the iniquity of it all. And Lee, as his pastor, who has earned that spot in his life and is inv invested in the process of serving him, says, do you think there might be a pattern to this? Well, of course, the immediate response to the person is, no, it's a terrible idea. Right. <laughs> Never had a thought like that in my brain. Well, no, that, that, that doesn't even sound right. Of course not. <laughs> but this is where we get into this Hebrews passage is, Lee's earned that spot. So he says, maybe think about it. Right. And, and this young fellow takes his role, which is to say, I should think about it. It doesn't sound right, but I should think about it. 
I should get into it. It's complex, man. There's lots of angles. Exactly right. You don't know. (laughs) I feel like it couldn't possibly be that simple. (laughs) But you know what? Lee's earned uh, that spot in my life, so I'm going to give his advice a fair shake. And would you guys believe it? (laughs) It turned out Lee was right. He could have foreseen such a circumstance. Oh, my goodness. How could it be? So, again, this is one of those things where there are two sides to this, and, and both people need to uphold their end of the bargain. Yeah, that's right. Your pastor does need to earn that spot. They need to know your name. They need to know your situation. They need to be serving you. But you, if they do that, you have to give them the trust that they've earned. Uh, that means that doesn't mean doing everything they say without question, but it does mean looking at the advice that they give you, that they have prayed about, that they have sought the Lord about, that they is based on knowing you, and giving that a fair shake and a fair consideration, and at least trying it, at least walking down that road. I, because again, a lot of being a pastor to people is giving them advice that sounds weird. Um, and, and that's, you know, it, it takes some trust, but if we've got a person who's earning that spot and we're giving the trust they've earned, then we've actually got the spiritual, spiritual authority thing in a good and biblical place. That's absolutely right. It definitely takes us back to where, uh, Glenn started this question, which is the idea that on both sides of this equation, um, this is not a, a dramatic thing. This is not, we've come from miles to hear you speak, right. a wizened one <laughs> for you are a spiritual authority. Nor is it um, someone just giving such amazing advice that the other party just is overwhelmed by it. It, The rubber meets the road in this, uh, exactly as Jed's describing. When you look at someone who's earned a spot in your life, who's given advice, say, well, that sounds crazy to me. But okay, I will give it a half-hearted enough shot to see if it works or not. And that's fine. That's that's as it should be. But one of the things we, again, there's this, this idea of People trying to use this as was going to talk about people trying to use this overwrought language about spiritual when they're trying to use very high, very kind of you know high language to describe something the actions of which are very unglamorous and very simple. Sometimes that can be a warning flag. Sometimes it can be you know it's just the term for it. Fine, whatever. But you know if we're talking about feet washing and giving good helpful advice. The desire to dress that up with impressive. Um, Impressive verbiage can in and of itself be a little bit of an issue. All right. If you have a question for us, say at podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. Tell you a song this week. Let's take out the a Jed Burr classic. This is a live recording from the bridge of God Don't Let Me Quit. And with that, thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Let's say that podcast halfway to Armageddon, but all the way to fun. <laughs> God so let me quit. Jesus, I don't have the strength unless you give me it. God, so let me go. Selling out on who I am when you were gone before your own. God, so let me think I'm not welcome where
Jesus, I don't have the strength unless you get me, yeah. We're going to go back to the beginning of that song. Jesus, I don't have the strength unless you get me in. God, so let me go. I'm selling out on who I am when you were born before your own. God, so let me think I'm not welcome where. Unless you give me it. 